everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I have a really special guest with me today. Her name's Dr. Alison Fiducia, and she's all the way from Santa Cruz in California. Um, she's a neuropharmacologist. Uh, we've even worked together at the University of California, San Francisco on alcohol addiction. She's a psychedelic researcher, and she's now the co-founder of Psychedelic Support and Project New Day. Uh, we've got a great kind of dinky die conversation around neuroscience. Um, I'm often asked questions around what's the benefit of psychedelics for the treatment of major depression disorders and addiction, et cetera. And she really is the expert. So I decided that this is the perfect opportunity to answer some of those questions with someone that actually is all over the literature and has a really firm understanding of its benefits, its side effects, and also the potential for really changing the way we think about mental health um, illnesses and disorders. So thank you so much for joining us, Alison. Would you like to say hello to everyone? Hi, everyone. Thanks so much, Selena. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let's let's just get started by saying, how did you come into this uh, work? And what have you learned through all of the things that you've been doing across many times you've spent in universities at the National Institutes of Health and in the MAPS project, which we might um, tell the audience a little bit about. I think uh, in Australia, for example, this kind of area of research is really nascent. It's quite early on. So please let everyone know about what you've learned over the last number of years. Sure. I started researching MDMA back in 2004 as part of a graduate program at the University of Texas. And at the time, we received funding to look at the effects of this compound in the context of raves or dance clubs. It was a really heightened time where a lot of individuals were going to um, raves and dance parties and taking ecstasy, which contains MDMA. And there was questions around how the environment could impact the effects of this compound, as well as if there are any uh, adverse effects from taking MDMA at a, a rave type environment where oftentimes people are dancing, exerting a lot of energy, as well, being, as, well as being in a heated environment. And these type of factors can actually increase the risk of adverse outcomes when someone takes MDMA. And so the lab work we were doing was actually in rodent models, but we were studying the effects of these conditions and looking at the neurochemical release of serotonin and dopamine primarily. And what we learned was that, yes, uh, psychedelics do interact with the mesolimbic dopaminergic pathway. For the lay audience out there, this is the reward pathway that is activated by drugs, by natural rewards such as um, sugar or anything that's really pleasurable is going to hit this pathway. So when you add music or a heated environment, we actually saw that when combined with MDMA, there was a greater release of these neurochemicals. So it's really fascinating to, to think about how a context can interact with a drug in the brain to induce some different type of effects. Yeah, uh, would you say this is very similar to exercising out of nature? like compared to exercising in a gym, uh, as an example, for people that have not had, you know, experienced raves or other things, you get a, you get a better beneficial additive effect by say ex hiking in nature versus just walking on a treadmill in a gym, for example. 
Yeah, exactly. And it seems that there's certain types of really uh, stimulating music, being around others. These are all very complementary to MDMA specifically. There's a release of oxytocin from MDMA, which is known to be a bonding hormone that naturally occurs whenever you're uh, relating to someone very deeply. This happens with between a mother and baby, but the oxytocin release with MDMA in these contexts with others and social environments is really, um, I think, why people choose to take ecstasy in these types of contexts or at a festival. Um, but that also gets into the therapeutic side of MDMA, which we're going to talk about, I'm sure, quite a bit with the MAPS work. Um, I guess we can kind of segue. Tell everyone what MAPS is because they won't. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It was founded in 1986, right after MDMA was placed on the Schedule One list of controlled substances here in the US. So, so prior to this, it was being used by a small number of therapists in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. And it was found to be helpful for therapy, for couples therapy in particular is what they were using it for. So it never really had any controlled research by 1985 when it had at that time gotten quite popular in uh, dance clubs and just in social situations in general. So the DEA felt that uh, it was important to schedule this compound. But unfortunately, there wasn't uh, enough research at the time to really substantiate any type of medical benefits. So the Schedule One is the highest restricted. Um, nature of it. So this prevented a lot of research from happening for many years, but MAPS uh, founder Rick Doblin really stayed at it and worked through the regulatory approvals and eventually was able to launch a drug development program with MDMA for using it in combination with psychotherapy. And so the idea with this is that Someone goes through preparatory sessions of therapy that are with uh, two trained therapists. Then they undergo these MDMA assisted therapy sessions where it's eight hours long. It's in a very comfortable setting. They take MDMA and they use it to have a psychotherapeutic process. The main indication that MAPS has been developing this method for is for post-traumatic stress disorder. And so during these sessions, a person um, can really go deeper into their traumatic memories, the emotions that surround the traumas. We think that it's a way of processing what happened, having new insights. And then we, we consider the neurochemicals and hormones that are released from MDMA. We can really speculate about how this might be facilitating a longer term recovery from PTSD, which has been shown in these studies that people say it's like refiling uh, these trauma memories in their brain, that they are able to reduce a lot of defenses around the memories and really access um, parts of themselves or parts of these memories to get past what happened and know that they're living more in a, a present state. Yeah, so um, I found that really interesting because when you and I were working together, we were very much working on a medical model of developing drugs that target certain pathways in the brain. And then and then uh, you left and moved on. And then we met up in Berkeley. I remember this in a coffee shop and you're telling me that you're working for MAPS. And 
I guess um, that was some time ago now, probably five or six years ago. And I remember you saying, so I think the what you're telling me is that this treats the whole person in a way. Um, and it also gets people to not just keep unpicking um, things that they can't change, but it's, it's somehow moving their brain forward is what you're saying kind of thing by putting yeah. positive neurochemical increases in their brain. Yeah, what's really different with this approach is not that someone would take MDMA every day or repeatedly. The idea is that they only take it three times in the context of psychotherapy with other integrative visits after is what it's called. So it's non-drug therapy too. And so it's about the psychological process, getting it to getting a person to a place where they don't need to rely on medications to blunt symptoms or to reduce um, whatever feelings they, that they can't seem to um, get past with PTSD. We published a paper on this, which was largely theoretical, but I think it makes a lot of sense based on what we know on the neurochemical release of MDMA. So it's primarily releasing serotonin uh, to lesser extent, dopamine and norepinephrine. Downstream from that, there's also hormone release, which is cortisol, oxytocin, prolactin um, are the main, the main effects of this compound. And so what we proposed in this paper was that when individuals are in this context of psychotherapy and they take MDMA, and then they recall a trauma memory, that memories can be labile and, and auditable. They, they can change even without a drug. And so what might be happening with this dopamine effect is that there's like a mismatch in that now they're in the safe environment, they have two supportive people, and they feel more euphoric from the serotonin release. They feel very open, very expansive. And so when this memory is recalled and they are able to talk about it, that perhaps it's getting filed back into the brain in a different configuration that is no longer there triggering them and triggering nightmares or you know, improper anxiety response, which is the basis of PTSD. So has anyone done the brain imaging work on this yet to show that there is a change in neural circuitry, for example, like an activation in the in the stridal, you know, in the in the systems that um, make us retrieve these old memories when we're under stress or trauma, for example, has there been a demonstration that these uh, psychedelic light compounds can actually rewire the brain at speed um, compared to what it would take otherwise? Do you know? Yes. That? So we have um, some studies. They're very limited at this time. So that neuroimaging work has been done in healthy humans. And it has been shown that when MDMA is administered, that there's a decrease in activity of the amygdala. Yeah. And then in a separate study, there's shown to be um, an increase in functional connectivity between the hippocampus and the amygdala and a decrease in connectivity between the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. Wow. And that's so, just after one administration. Yeah. So that's during the administration. So while someone is still under the effects of MDMA, um, the, this has been observed in the brain, which helps us kind of think about the hippocampus being related to memory storage, the amygdala really uh, involved in emotion. It's often talked about as the fear, the area in your brain that's going to light up when you're in a fearful context or condition. And I know, Selena, you talk a lot about Miggy. 
Yes. <laughs> and how to regulate the amygdala. Yes. Uh, it's a it's a it's the problem and the solution all in one bag. Yeah. And in people that have PTSD, that region is known to be highly overactive oftentimes. But another effect with PTSD is sometimes it's called a hypoactivity too, where people are at a really blunted emotional state. And that's also um you know, maybe some some way that the MDMA puts people in this ideal window of tolerance for drawing up emotions, memories, and then perhaps there's this reorganization in the brain that happens. That would be like a brain freeze, isn't it? Like, you know, like MDD, like major depressive disorder for some people that, are, that have kind of inherited the genetic basis for having a more negative set brain in some sets, if we're talking about the brain, not the people here, then you, you know that um, they've got an underactive amygdala in some sense too, right? Because of their inherited brain wiring in some way. Yeah, so whether that's, whether your neural state is from, I think it's a mix, right? Genetics, the environment, what's been fed into that brain through your lifetime, those patterns that are there. Um, so that's a that's a, the hypothesis we have. And then on the other side of this is fear extinction, which is a different pathway in the brain. And that um, the classic experiment is, you know, the Pavloni, the Pavlovian cue being paired with a non-associated cue. So I think about my dog. Yeah. He now knows it's dinner time. Whenever I pick up the bowl, he starts salivating, <laughs> gets very excited. So he's associated that bowl with being fed. The same thing happens with uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, often people have learned to associate certain cues with a fear response. So it might be uh, that someone was in war, they hear a loud bang, now they have associated that with a bomb being dropped, but really it might just be someone slamming a door in another room, but the brain is going to react in the same way that it's a threat. So helping to disentangle a threat or disentangle something in the brain that's associating these cues. So there's been work with animals that have shown that MDMA can help facilitate the forgetting of these negative uh cues that are associated with a negative response yeah i was so going to say that you could imagine that that now that you've really pumped through serotonin at massive amounts in those sessions then now you re and that that memory comes up but now there's a positive association it goes back to that context um, where people are heated in a rave around people and everyone's having fun um, you're reassociating a new memory to when that next sound comes in or something like that or that memory now you have a more positive association to it like reattaching a different context maybe to those memories yeah absolutely i think the um context with two supportive therapists that you've really gotten to know and trust and it feels very safe to go there is very thera therapeutic so people like to say oh, it's like I did 10 years of therapy compressed into these three MDMA sessions. And also very important is the integrative sessions. So it's about like then reflecting about what came up during those sessions and how to apply them 
in your life to make behavioral changes or repair relationships, really proactive steps of not just that happened and that was very healing and transform transformative, but then how do you make that apply to your life in meaningful ways? Well, this brings us to the next probably really important section is that there are no panaceas, are there? So um, let's talk a little bit about people that aren't doing it under supported environments and maybe experimenting like daily <laughs> rather than just occasionally to move on from something. So like everything that we take, there are also negative side effects. And I think that's really important to talk about. Yeah, it is. And that's one of the main reasons why we put up this website, psychedelic.support. My husband, Sean Grona, and I in 2018 we're really uh, excited about the momentum for the psychedelic therapeutic work, but seeing a real gap in the education out there around, you know, how to take these substances safely and with intention, because there can be some serious adverse outcomes for, for people if they're not very mindful about how they're approaching this. Um, part of, part of that is really understanding what substances are, what the doses are for a given substance, understanding if you have a particular underlying condition, a health condition, or, or taking certain medications, if that can uh, be interfere with psychedelics in, in severe ways. So that's really important that people understand those contraindicated conditions. That's um, one thing. And then where people take a substance can also really impact the potential for adverse outcomes. So if you're at a festival or you go to a retreat center, um, it's really different risk factors that come up and knowing how to approach these things with a lot of care is is important message for everyone to hear. Um, so the other thing, um, I, I mean, I've been obviously there's many advocates for psych to change and move psychedelics from schedule one um, for lots of reasons, but it, it has meant that there are a lot of young people that don't see the, they see it as not addictive, but what I see happening by following lots of podcasts and other things, you know, being a pharmacist and everything as well, like um, you understanding all of the benefits and risks, people do get addicted to that experience it's maybe not to the drug, but they become very addicted to the experience of, and the oneness feeling. And I see that that ends up people escalating the dosages sometimes because they can't get the same experience anymore. Yeah, I, th I think there's a, a risk of that as well is that it becomes a peak experience. It has no other value in one's life beyond just the pleasure seeking which is can be a downfall and that whole piece about integration people really talk about this a lot in the field of using psychedelics with intention for therapeutic purposes spiritual pur purposes and then giving time and space between experiences to really work with these different medicines on a deeper level if it becomes just about um, having a great time with your friends, that can be a slippery slope for a lot of people. You know, it's a misunderstanding too that psychedelics are very safe and they have no risk. It's a lot of drugs get lumped under this large umbrella of psychedelic, which just means mind manifesting. 
One that really comes to mind is ketamine, mm -hmm. which is now being used for the treatment of uh, treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, as well as off-label use for a number of other conditions. Do you want to just tell the audience a little bit about what ketamine is? Because most people won't have yeah. that. Sure. It's actually a very uh, well-known old compound. I think it was first discovered in 1962, used as an anesthetic agent and um, also got popular in the dance rave scene in like 80s, 90s, and became known as a horse tranquilizer because of its use in veterinary medicine. But in the last five or so years, it's really come into the uh, medical community as a treatment for depression. And there is a FDA approved S-ketamine, which is a <coughs> type of ketamine, uh, for nasal spray. So it's actually gone through the rigorous testing to show that it's better than placebo. But at the same time, a lot of people read about this and think it's harmless, but there are serious adverse consequences, especially if people take this repeatedly in recreational settings. It's not so much physically addictive, but psychologically it can be. And the adverse risk of this are serious bladder toxicity after a year or two of repeated use people can even get so severe that their bladder has been has to be taken out so this is not something you want to mess around with just um, in a recreational context without a lot of oversight from a medical professional there's also been shown in chronic users to be cognitive impairments, lesions in the brain, other, other things that are very aversive. So while it can be a life-saving medication for people that have suicidal ideation or severe depression, the effects are quite short, even for those conditions, like three days, three to seven days, maybe at best two weeks. So there are people that are, that are combining ketamine with psychotherapy in a similar way that MAPS is combining MDMA with psychotherapy for PTSD. So the idea being that in this more open state, you can actually um, use that open state for building skills or really working on the psychological issues that are driving the depression in the first place. Yeah, so maybe we could talk a little bit about just how long these drugs have really been around. I mean, they've been used in ancient civilizations for thousands of years, haven't they? But but the LSD was only extracted by Hoffman only in 1938 or something like that. And then he absorbed it on his skin and noticed all these effects. And I mean, it was really the start of the pharmaceutical era, wasn't it? These, these drugs are not something new though. They actually drove the development of antidepressants and antipsychotics and, and all the other drugs that we know of today came from that first set of discoveries really. Right. Indigenous tribes they're finding have used plant medicines like ayahuasca, psilocybin containing mushrooms, iboga for millennia. Like they, there's no really recorded history to know exactly when this was figured out, but the ceremonial use for medicinal and spiritual purposes has been around for, for so long. And some of these newer compounds, like LSD and, and ketamine and, and other, and other uh, MDMA as well as synthetic drugs that um, are more relatively new, but still have this very interesting history from 
from the 60s and with LSD in particular, a lot of people don't realize that after Albert Hoffman synthesized it, Sandus, where he was working, just sent it out to lots of researchers, doctors. They didn't know what it was going to be good for. So they said, hey, everybody, just try this. Try it with your patients and let us know how we can use this compound. So there's a rich literature of um, you know, all these promising effects that are being reported today were actually, they were aware of this back in the 50s and 60s, but because of the use in non-medical settings and uh, the counterculture with the war movement here in the U.S., the, the, the hippies and this anti-establishment movement that it was really shut down. Yes, I read about that. Um... The only reason it really moved to Schedule One was because it was it was going against American values. Apparently, all of the counterculture in San Francisco. Um, so it wasn't that it was because the drugs were really bad for people. It was the consequences of people starting a counterculture movement after the Vietnam War. I, I really had no idea about that until recently. Yeah, the tune in drop out, tune in drop. I forget what it was from Timothy Leary, but it's a very catchy phrase of just basically drop out of society, tune into these drugs, tune into this different way of living. Yeah, um, so I so know there's a lot to learn from that. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about Project New Day, which sounds really exciting. Um, what what sprung it? I noticed that Paul Stamets is on your advisory board, who's quite famous in this in the mushroom world. I know that from all of my readings and podcasts that I've listened to. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I got connected with Mike Sinyard, who's the founder and CEO of Specialized Bicycles. It's a large bicycle brand, uh, but Mike is a philanthropist and was learning about everything happening in the psychedelic space. And is really passionate about using psychedelic treatments for addiction disorders and helping people on their path to recovery by funding um, research, by advocating, advocating for uh, this type of approach to learn more about it and how we might be able to use psychedelics as in the context of other holistic modalities for recovery. So we don't think it's just the drug, you just take it and like your addiction problems are gonna melt away, but using it as part of a holistic plan where people can have support from peers or support from uh, professionals and use these substances and the potential neurobiological effects that they enable someone to really shift their motivations, to shift uh, their way of seeing their lives and, and using it as a path to recovery. So I'm really interested to go to a bit high level here. Hope you don't mind. Um, but as you know now, um, with Andrew and Folletti's work um, out of CDC and Kaiser Permanente, they, where they demonstrated, uh, and not just their work now, but how addictions and mental illnesses and many other things mm -hmm. outside genetics are also the early life experiences that we have impact um, our wiring or our brain architecture that drive, you know, addictions and other things. So, and some of this is multi generational. You know, so they're demonstrating that microRNAs holding these memories. So I don't know what psychedelics do to those yet. But, you know, that impact of multi-generational trauma on the brain architecture that drives impacts on executive function leading to addictions um, and that kind of thing. I'd, I'm interested to see how the, how the psychedelic movement is incorporating 
this kind of new understanding from neuroscience, brain imaging and genomics research too? Yeah, it's definitely a question we've been really interested in. And while I was at MAPS, we set up a um, like auxiliary study to actually look at the epigenetic effects in some of the participants that were in the MDMA trial. So looking at the, the epigenetic effects before and after they've gone through treatment and trying to understand if uh, there's any changes there, if there's any way to see if that could be predictive of a treatment response. Right, yeah. Because that's something important to say too, is that with the media, a lot of times people think, oh, everyone does this and they get better. But there are still about 30% of people in these studies, it's pretty consistent across MDMA, psilocybin, and, and some of the other compounds that have been looked at, that there's a cohort that will get much better. There's some people that have substantial improvement and then some that just don't really have much improvement from these treatments. So, you know, why is that? That's really interesting to look at as well, well and try and to And also, understand. you know, uh, that's pretty much the case for most drugs too. It's pretty much a 30% response rate um, in other drugs too. But well, that could be overreported, though, as you know, because <laughs> the, yeah. the, the drugs have to be dosages escalated and the, and the uh, impact wanes over time. Um, but uh, what I love about this particular example is that it's not a lifestyle drug. It's not a drug that you take for the rest of your life. And that's a big difference. Right, right. And you had brought up um, you're looking at neuroplasticity in your lab a lot more now. And that is a major finding that's been put out from non-clinical models is that all of these compounds, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ibogaine, DMT, have all been shown to activate neuroplasticity in the increase of synaptogenesis. So more connections between neurons, more, um, more neuronal growth and, and synapses being formed for a window of time, there's an increase in BDNF. And mm -hmm. so all of this really suggests that there may be this opportunity after someone takes a psychedelic to uh, make some shifts in their thinking or make some shifts yeah. in their life. And if it is the basis of learning, then it's like, what are, what are they learning after? And that's where the therapy really comes in. Yes. And I think that if you could combine it with the principles of neuroplasticity, so people see the thing about drugs is that people think that they take them, they'll get better. But the problem is that to drive real neuroplasticity changes over your life, it's a lifestyle change you're making too, isn't it? And you've got to do the daily work, which isn't e always easy depending on how much trauma you've inherited too, you know what I mean, over mm -hmm. your lifespan. So that there probably is a big window of opportunity to combine that as well, those that, you know, to help people make that big shift if they're trying to. Yeah, absolutely. There's a researcher, David Olson, who's developing, um, wanting to target the same pathway in the brain, but without the psychedelic effects. So he's looking for uh -huh. other drugs that he might be able to develop that can increase this neuroplasticity pathway without someone having to have any of his subjective experiences, which I think is very interesting, but also see it as like, it's a different approach. It's a different uh, way of working with someone or working with a condition. So we'll, yeah. we'll see what comes from that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to, cause I know, I'm sure you must philosophize about all of this and evolution. 
And um, I don't, you know, reading back over the ancient civilizations and understanding evolution, as in where we came from, which is really from the Big Bang, um, if you believe that. <laughs> um, so thinking about, you know, to, to, and this is going to sound really sad, but it's not meant to be, um, but to be human is to suffer in a way, um, going back all over the ancient civilization. So living and surviving is you have to be really strong, right, and be resilient. If you look at Darwinian genetics and now Lamarckian genetics, it's the survival of the fittest plus then how our life experiences impact, you know, our capacities for resilience. So, you know, what we're talking about here, and maybe this is how psychedelics play in, but neuroplasticity and really tapping into that is an opportunity to break with evolution, isn't it? And our current evolutionary trajectory as a human species, we have this capacity in the front part of our brain to really drive a different pathway, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And I find it very curious to the uprising of psychedelics at the time where we're facing this climate catastrophe and this real need to make rapid change of the way we're living our lives, the way we view ourselves and our position in it. And there is often an underlying theme to a lot of these psychedelic experiences, which are related to this, we're all one, we're all one with the world. And like, we're not going to be able to be on planet Earth if we can't figure out how to do so in a sustainable way. And so they talk about plant medicines really evoking this type of thinking and experiences in people for wanting to um, to really align with with the earth and the climate and our and our responsibility to to own what we're doing here with our growing population of humans. So, what do you think is um, and I mean, back in ancient civilizations, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these plant medicines and other and other ways actually invoked a lot of the art and culture of the time, producing mm -hmm. beautiful work, sculptures, etc. Um, so do you think that um, as someone that's young and, and, and trying to drive things in a new direction like you have been uh, and for our thinking about our children uh, and helping them, um, as I think we have a responsibility to do, what do, you, what do you see as the hope then of things we can do to improve the way we live um, on the planet and to stop consuming as much, I guess, is the right word. Um, you know, what do we do? Because it is actually quite catastrophic if, if all the predictions are correct, which I'm sure they are because it's been studied for a long time now. What do you see as how these medicines or have you seen any shifts um, related to the in increase in usage, for example, in California? Um, like, I'd like you to speak to that. Yeah, I'm not sure of any like specific research that's that's quantified this, but I think psychedelics are powerful amplifiers of self-reflection, of seeing a bigger picture, of understanding how we can shape our own lives. And by doing that work, internal work on ourselves, that, that really ripples out to our families, to our communities and to the world at large. So, What's going to have to happen is we're all going to have to kind of let go, I think, of a lot of ways that we've become accustomed to operating in and really find ways of embracing change. So that neuroplasticity piece and the ability to change behaviors, our thinking, 
could really intersect uh, in a big wave with what we're facing. Well, I think this is a great way to end the podcast and let's end on an inspiration, shall we? <laughs> so for, yeah. Like as someone that's, a, you know, has children who are now in their 20s and who got to live uh, as, as you know, generation without really the same worries that have been now left to our children, I feel somewhat a big responsibility um, to do something better or different or contribute in some way to make a change. I think it's, it is our responsibility to leave things better than when we came. And so I'm really grateful to hear that maybe there are some opportunities to have this happen <laughs> going into the future that uh, I see it in the younger people in, in, the, in their 20s. They seem way more responsible than I was at the same age, that's for sure. Yeah, it's about coming together, collaborating, knowing what the goal is and all working in unison to do that. And I'm optimistic that we can get there. And we have all this new technology and tools and globally we're connected. So it's just about making it happen. So off we go, I say. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Alison. I wish you all the best with Project New Day. It's so exciting. And, and I'm really grateful that you're, and I see you posting on LinkedIn all the time, all the latest evidence-based studies around um, the intersection of psychedelic um, and psychotherapy for the treatment of, you know, PTSD and addiction and try and provide that um, neutral, non-biased voice. I think that's really, really important so that people get both sides of the argument and don't go in thinking that this is the panacea that they're all been looking for. So I'm really grateful to see that. So thank you for doing that for our community. Yeah, thanks so much. And I appreciate all the great work you're doing to translate all this work coming from the neuroscience labs to make it very applicable for people in their real life. Yeah, well, thank you. And it's so great to have a neuroscientist join me on the podcast. Um, it's probably the first one of these, in, but maybe we'll, I think uh, this might be the beginning of having these conversations so we can continue to educate the public about the benefits of neuroscience um, in people's daily life. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. You're welcome.